0: in connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night podcast. I am James. With me tonight is Jason. Hello. And Steffi. Hi. We have got another great episode. But first, I want to wish somebody on this call a happy birthday. Happy birthday to Dr. Steffi Diem, a cherished member of the Science Night team. I wanted to acknowledge how lucky we are to have you here and how happy Jason and I are that you are so generous with your time. And if you got to listen to how long it took us to get to this moment in this recording, you would see just how generous she is. So Dr. Steffi Diem, happy birthday.
1: Thank you so much. It was like a party. We had we had the, an extended birthday party before we even you even joined us. So I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to be talking about the science of fear, how the stigma surrounding cannabis affects research. And we'll finish with a conversation with Dr. Barbara Kaplan from Mississippi State University, who works in cannabis research and regularly navigates the winding road of government regulation. But first, the news. We're going to start off with just a quick announcement, maybe a celebratory announcement, and it is that the FDA has just recently approved the use of the Pfizer vaccine for five to 11-year-olds. So you can finally get those elementary school-age children vaccinated. It gets us one step closer to making everyone safer. I'm super excited about this news.
2: Oh, me too. I can't even tell you how excited we are. We have one who still needs his vaccine, and he's not one who usually likes to, to get shots. I mean, I'm not certain that anybody really likes to get shots, but he has very much not liked to get shots in the past. And he is so excited to get his shot that we are going to try to get him in this weekend uh, at, a, at a walk-in clinic Yeah, because um, he can't wait to do it. I told him, you know what, I will go and I will get my booster at the same time that you get your first dose. So that way we can go back and get your second dose three weeks later and we'll be all good and everyone will be up to full capacity. And he seems to be pretty cool with it. So I'm so relieved.
1: That is such great news. I am so happy for everyone. There's like a big sigh of relief from all my friends too. And coupled that to the booster shots that are coming out. So that's Mm -hmm. been exciting. I got my booster shot last Friday. In front of me was a banana getting their booster shot. So we've extended it to fruits. Yeah. I mean, that close to Halloween, people are showing up in costumes. So it was great.
0: Before we move on, I just want to remind everyone that... You should check with your local health agencies to determine the procedures for scheduling an appointment for your children, because this is the United States and every state and locality is going to do this differently. So check on how you can register your children to receive this vaccine and then register them for this vaccine. But also, you know, continue social distancing, wearing a mask. Um, As a Vermonter, I feel it is my duty to maybe throw a quick jab at our governor who said he's not hearing constituents calling for restrictions like in public masking and social distancing to come back. So I, as one of your constituents, am please asking you to put masking and social distancing back in place, Governor Phil Scott. Love, James Reed. So let's move on to our next story. And Steffi just talked about the fun that comes with halloween and having a banana get a vaccine before you i guess before (laughs) in front of, of one's one's view and halloween may be over but the desire for a good fright lives on many people get this by watching horror movies riding roller coasters Or listening to our Halloween special, which is still available wherever you get your podcast. But why? Why do we seek out this feeling of unease? An article from CNET by Manisha Ravicetti, in consultation with Ariana Gallagher, the Associate Director of the Trauma Recovery Center at Ohio State University. Sorry, we had to go to Ohio State University, Steffi. It's it's, uh, it's a a rival of sorts. So this article was looking at the neurochemistry behind why people like to be frightened so much. So, what did we all think about this article? Did it explain everything? Do you like? Does everyone here enjoy horror movies, being frightened, uh, that sort of thing?
1: I do. So, I, I found this part great in the article where they say one one thing the trauma expert says is you can desensitize yourself to trauma to kind of process it better. And so looking back, I'm going to circle back to my birthday. I realized part of the reason I think I like horror movies so much is because it's they typically come out around Halloween time, which is around my birthday and I always have Halloween themed birthday parties watching horror movies. So I'm desensitizing myself and and pairing it with something that is enjoyable. That's another thing that was pointed out in the article. If you have an aversion to horror movies or maybe you're You're focused on, oh, my gosh, this thing is going to kill me. And thinking about scenarios after a horror movie, turn to YouTube or something happy afterwards to kind of clear that from your mind. So I thought that was a great (laughs) thing that I came that I got out of this article.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a huge wimp when it comes to horror movies, usually, except for the month of October. That's when I'm like, no. (laughs) This is culturally important now. I must watch our movies, but you're right. Like uh, sometimes I do switch over to like a cute cat video or uh, like maybe maybe a maybe a quick TikTok about making the perfect latte. I, I can say for sure that I have experimentally tried this out and it does work a little bit. Also, since I am basically blind without my glasses, maybe, oops, my glasses slid down and I was not being a coward. I was just not able to actually see anything. That's another another tip from, from me to you.
2: So this is really interesting because I'm a horror film kind of person all year long. I love them. And I actually have no one who will watch them with me in my house yet. <laughs> I have my youngest maybe is leaning starting to lean that way, getting more interested. But uh but everybody else in this house, nope. Not interested. And so I don't get to watch them as much as I used to, but what I did really like about them is that they were exciting to watch, right? And I think this is what's at the heart of the the article that we're talking about. This idea that, you know, people who are seeking this thrill are doing it because watching horror films is triggering a release of dopamine, which, you know, makes them satisfied, right? I mean, it makes them feel really good, but when you add in the horror element of it and that scare tactic, it also um, sort of uh, spikes your adrenaline and your cortisol, which is a stress hormone that makes you feel excited and also nervous at the same time. And so this is where watching the cat videos actually for someone who is not a fan of horror films can really be important because after that release of the stress hormone, right? You're going to be a little bit jittery And uh, eventually the dopamine is going to wear off probably before the cortisol wears off because it's happening first in the sequence. When that happens, you're going to be left with the jitters. And the best way to sort of calm yourself down is maybe to watch something like a cat video. Now, I guess that depends on what kind of a cat video it is, right? Because if we're talking about a cat video of, you know, a kitten swatting a ball of yarn. That's one thing. If we're talking about like a lion taking down its prey, maybe that's not the same thing. Um, although to me, they're all cat videos and, and I like them all the same.
0: Unless you just finished listening to our conversation with Bill Sullivan, where we talked about how Toxoplasma gondii <laughs> oh. is driving you toward yeah. those cats, so oh, maybe it's, it's uh, maybe maybe we gotta watch baking video baking competitions. Yeah. There we so go. So
2: actually, that's a really good point because he told me I didn't have much to worry about, but it sounds mm-hmm. like because I immediately went back to the predator prey cat thing, that maybe I do have something to worry about, and maybe there are Toxoplasma, you know, cysts in my brain that are just sitting there latent and waiting for me to get eaten by. By my own cat perhaps maybe
0: maybe it's what drove us to this article in the first place
2: well now i'm horrified all over again james this is not <laughs> fun
1: but you like horror movies so we're good
2: yeah those are movies this is real oh, life Yeah,
1: this is real life Oops.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: let's not talk about real life
2: <laughs> uh, all those things that make us feel good whether they are natural processes or whether they are induced by you know an external stimulus i guess maybe that would still be natural but something like you know, drug intervention. It's affecting our brains in similar ways. And those things can become addictive and we can build up tolerances to things. And so to these, you know, substances and to that feeling. And so you seek more of it and more of it. If it's a natural process, you can have to do crazier and crazier and dare I say, maybe dumber things in order to get that high again.
1: Yeah. And that can lead to excessive release of these stress hormones. And that can actually in turn create, you know, things like extra inflammation in your body, which is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear my most irrational fear?
0: I I would love to.
1: I remember exactly how it happened. I was little and I was watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and he had a song in there about how you can never go down the drain and you shouldn't be afraid of it. And then I was afraid forever of drains. (laughs)
3: <laughs> because wow. I just
1: kept <laughs> imagining, like, why is he singing about not being afraid of the drain? Wait, what's beyond okay. a drain? Maybe I should.
2: All right. So yeah, then I have of to, drains. I have to follow that up with Are you a fan of it by Stephen King?
1: I cannot watch it. I've seen that picture <laughs> of the balloon. Are you talking about the balloon coming out of the sewer? Well, we, and so now, yeah. Yeah.
2: So, you know, you would think I would think that that would be the best way for you to get over your fear of of drains would be to watch it because you associate it with Halloween mm. and it's associated Ooh. with your birthday. And suddenly it's not all that bad.
1: Okay. Okay. I'm going to do it. My own now, experiment on my do myself. not
2: take do not take medical advice for me. <laughs>
0: Not that kind of doctor.
2: To be clear, it's it's probably good policy to take no advice at all from me. But this one might work. And so, you know, I'm curious to know how it works.
1: I'm gonna try it and report back.
2: Nice. And if something goes awry, like it was all James's
0: idea. I was gonna say if, if this if this causes a rift between between co-hosts and all of a sudden we're introducing a new set of co-hosts in the next episode you'll know exactly where this rift began let's just not have one of those velvety smooth transitions that i've been giving everyone for the last one let's just move on to the next story researching things that have a long history of stigmatization is difficult it's hard to find funding Navigating regulations is difficult, and government restrictions can prevent you from exploring your topic fully. But that doesn't mean that the work isn't important. In our last episode, we talked about this in reference to animal research, and today we're talking about it in reference to cannabis research. In a letter to the U.S. Congress, so we're talking about the United States here, other countries surprisingly don't have these hangups and uh, have been doing research in cannabis for years. But we are talking about the United States and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA, explained how restrictions around cannabis and other Schedule 1 substances are severely limiting their studies, citing many of the issues I just mentioned, like unexpected delays on ongoing research, complex registration processes with the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, and restricted access to material for their research. So I wanted to get everyone's opinion and thoughts on this idea of rescheduling things like cannabis and opioids so that Researchers can actually find out some meaningful things about these substances.
2: This is an interesting question. In the interest of full disclosure, I have been a longtime advocate for rescheduling cannabis from Schedule 1 because it's, it was put in, into Schedule 1 for reasons that are unsavory and probably have nothing to do with the you know, chemicals within that substance at all, um, and only to do with the groups of, of individuals who are using that substance. And so I have no problem rescheduling cannabis from schedule one to something that would be more accessible for the research enterprise. I'm also a proponent of legalization of cannabis federally because I think that the, the money that could be gained from taxes would actually do a lot of good for the country in places um, where there isn't a lot of tax base right now, or at least not enough uh, to deal with things like education and infrastructure and things like that. That aside, I don't know that I'm fully in favor of reclassifying several Schedule 1 drugs, including opioids from Schedule 1, because it's fundamentally a different thing. So Schedule 1 drugs are you know, among those drugs with the highest addictive potential. And um, cannabis does not seem to fit into that category just straight up. Um, it doesn't seem to be quite as addictive as something like heroin. But um, that's not actually the reason that I don't want to reclassify things like opioids. The reason I don't want to reclassify things like opioids is not because, you know, they are more addictive. It's because they are chemical compounds that were developed in a laboratory. So we already know what is in that. No is. What, you know, so we know what, what individuals who are um, addicted to these um, opioid painkillers, especially. So when I talk about opioids, I'm not talking about heroin like you know, from the street. I'm talking about you know, something produced by Purdue Pharma, for example. Even the generic versions, we know exactly what's in that. And we have a pretty good idea of how that's acting um, on the human body just because we've been studying this for so long. When it comes to the reclassification of cannabis, though, what's being sold to the general public is not what is being used for research. The University of Mississippi is the only place that the federal government allows to grow cannabis um, to be used in research. And so we know very much about that one particular batch of cannabis, which is not a batch that's being consumed by anyone in the general public. And so that's, that's the reason right there alone to reclassify cannabis Mm -hmm. from schedule one. But again, I would never advocate for taking things like opioids and moving them from schedule one because they're highly addictive. And we have a pretty good idea of what is happening with those drugs uh, and what individuals are taking.
0: I agree with what you just said, except for this caveat, which I think makes the scheduling process a little bit more skewed. Uh, The only opiate that is currently schedule one is heroin. Vicodin, uh, Dilaudid, Demerol, Oxycontin are all Schedule Two at this point. So okay,
2: well that actually is an important point to make, right? Yeah. And so if anything, like that is another sort of case in point as to why cannabis shouldn't be Schedule One.
0: Correct. So the so, big the big difference is Schedule One drugs are listed as those that have no currently accepted medical use that is that is the difference so they're not saying that schedule 2 drugs do not have a high potential for abuse they're just saying that they have everything in schedule 1 except for the medical use uh mm. caveat so
1: then yeah, can yeah. i ask like tobacco yeah tobacco yeah sure alcohol
0: right i mean alcohol
2: oh, yeah
1: yeah
0: so tobacco is is listed as a schedule 3 drug uh, with uh, up there with Tylenol and anabolic steroids and testosterone. And then there's also Schedule 4 and Schedule 5 drugs. Schedule 5 caffeine is listed as a Schedule 5 drug. Low potential for abuse. I think there's there's plenty of studies, but there's also plenty of studies that there's caffeine dependence is a thing. It's not going Mm. to You know, I I think what we're finding here is not that the drugs are necessarily scheduled incorrectly, it's that the scheduling system is just full of plot holes. Who knew that the US government could make things too complicated and not adequate to actual like implementation? Did you read the
1: systemic racism is thrown in there too?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, maybe we should point out the fact that I have been using the term cannabis when talking about cannabinoids and everything. And we do that for the, I don't think I've slipped up and said marijuana, but the the term marijuana is rife with racism and classism Mm -hmm. and lots of bad things, um, commercialism even. You know, it's uh, just like when you talk about scheduling drugs, a Schedule 1 drug, a Schedule 5 drug, that is all meaningless unless you know the minutiae of the DAA, DEA scheduling system. And, I, you know, we talk a lot about science communication and science policy, and here is a perfect example of how jargon injected into these systems kind of make things not they, – they unneedingly obscure things, right? I agree. I don't know. I just – maybe this isn't actual – Something I'll keep in, but I got as I was reading this article and reading because my thoughts were exactly like yours. They reference opioids in this article as something worth researching, and I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if I feel great about this kind of stuff getting descheduled as like a lump sum thing. And then I read what is the Schedule One thing. I'm like, they're not even in it. Like the the NIDA report is. Technically not accurate in the sense that they're like calling for these opioids to be lumped in with cannabis research, but they're not scheduled at the same thing. It's a there's a difference, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, right, a hundred percent. There's a difference. So I'm not really sure why why that was lumped in together, right? Unless it was really trying to make that the case more for rescheduling classes of drugs right well and i
0: think that was the bigger argument right is that this entire system is overly complicated and the fact that the system is so complicated not complex is is deterring researchers or potentially deterring researchers you know it's hard to say whether or not it is actually driving people away but i would assume if you're looking at ways to make a career and the like unobtainably difficult to break through area or this less difficult area that you're still really interested in. You know, people are gonna move move away from these these Byzantine systems.
1: Well not just that job or your research interests, but public health concern too. I mean mm-hmm. this kind of goes back to the only source of cannabis is from it's grown by the University of Mississippi. And you can't use federal dollars to purchase from the state legal dispensaries um, where people are purchasing all of their cannabis and cannabis mm-hmm. products. And so that's a problem if we're not able to study and look at the benefits of these, you know, as they're, they're oftentimes marketed as, you know, medicinal benefits and backing that up with credible research is important mm-hmm. and investigating if there's any potential side effects or things you have to worry about. Like many drugs, they'll tell you Concerns that you have to look out for.
2: I would say, James, to your point a minute ago about you know limiting scientists um, when there's only one source that's available. Well, it's forget limiting scientists. It's limiting the science. That's sure. really the bigger picture here, right? And I mean, if you want to take a a capitalism approach to this, right? If you have a bigger market of cannabis to study, the science is going to be even better than if you're only looking at a single strain of Mm -hmm. cannabis right i mean think about all of the mouse research that is done to study human health and it's pretty rare these days that a single model of a disease is going to give you all the answers that you need to help cure that disease and so you're going to use a bunch of different systems different model systems to try to to get at the answers that you can't get at in one alone that is absolutely the case in plant biology too if we're only studying one strain and one population of cannabis, right? One patch of cannabis. And it's not even the ones, you know, that are being consumed by the general public. We got real problems with the limitations on the, on sort of the broad applicability of that research to other strains.
0: I I just, I don't know how to, I don't know how to talk about this without like, I'm, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't even actually use cannabis. And this still, like, really kind of grinds my gears, like when I'm talking about, when we're talking about how we're trying to make these safe and regulated markets for cannabis, uh, for recreational cannabis use, which I am also in favor of that as well. And we're not even able to research the stuff that's going to be in that market. It's, the entire game is kind of a farce at this point, but then also like yelling about it on a podcast isn't, isn't going to be super useful.
2: Maybe on (laughs) this podcast, maybe this podcast, it'll be super useful.
0: I you know, and, and that's what really, that's what really keeps me going is the fact that this podcast will be the one to -hmm. push it through. Um,
1: Well, this is going through our political system. It's policy, right? So, Mm One thing, talking about it, people know about it. Refer to the article, and you can you can contact your representatives. Yeah, and tell yeah. them what you think about this, especially when it's a public health concern. I mean, this is this this is the stuff people can get involved in,
0: and it's, it's happening true. right now too, right? So it's something that is is like happening at this moment. So this can be this can be a call to action that you can actually do, like as stop this podcast. And call your representatives and let them know what you think about this. (laughs) You are definitely going to want to come back to this podcast after you contact your representatives. I'm going to call, I'm going to pause this recording right now and go call Bernie Sanders and let him know what I think about this. I've already told governor Phil Scott, how I feel. We're going to go to a quick commercial break so that I can do this. So I can vent and tell my elected representatives how I feel when we come back. Jason is going to talk to Dr. Barb Kaplan, who does cannabis research and how it affects the immune system. It is a great conversation. She talks about cannabis on the immune system in animals. You will not want to miss it. So, that will all come to you after this quick commercial break. me. Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange.
1: Grotesque, stench of rotten flesh.
0: Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello.
3: Come here.
0: And welcome to Pulp from coming? Beyond the Veil.
2: Down we would like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Barbara Kaplan, who is an associate professor in the Center for Environmental Health Sciences in the Department of Comparative Biomedical Sciences and the College of Veterinary Medicine at Mississippi State University in Stark, Vegas. Welcome to the uh, podcast, Barb. It's so good to see you.
3: Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me. So Barb, tell us a little
2: bit about the work you do, because our audience is going to be fascinated to know that we are speaking to someone who studies or has experimented, I should say, with uh, marijuana or cannabis for probably 20 years now, right?
3: Yes, exactly. So um, So tell us
2: what that means exactly.
3: Yeah. So I have been experimenting with marijuana for almost 20 years now, but not in the way you think. Um, I'm a basic research scientist, and my job is to study the immune system. This is the body system that wards off infection and disease. And uh, so we're really trying to understand how the chemicals that are found in the marijuana plant affect your immune system, whether they affect it, and whether or not that's good or bad for you.
2: Great. So there are two primary ingredients, I guess, or chemical compounds that you're studying in cannabis, and that's CBD and THC. Can you tell us a little bit
3: about what those are? What do they stand for? What are they? How do they affect people? Sure. So THC is Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol and CBD is cannabidiol. That's typically what we're seeing a lot of around uh, the CBD oil. Both chemicals do come from the plant, but THC is the main chemical that makes you feel high after smoking or ingesting marijuana. CBD doesn't make you feel high because it doesn't have the rewarding properties of THC. And part of the reason that is, is because THC can bind to receptors or proteins in your brain that allows the THC to act and produce those rewarding effects.
2: So you mentioned rewarding effects. What does that that mean exactly? What are the rewarding effects of THC on cannabinoid receptors?
3: Right. So I've read that some of the rewarding effects are things like euphoria, uh, feeling of being relaxed, maybe losing time, which you may or may not want to do, helping with sleep, maybe relieving anxiety. So those are a few of the things that it's said to do.
2: And so uh, the reason I'm asking this question is because I know that that is a term that's in the literature with regard to the ways to describe the effects uh, of the high, but then this, yes. the term rewarding is the one. And so the, yes. this is clearly a deeply psychological basis for that, I'm assuming. Do you well, have insight insight into why that term is being used?
3: Um, sure. I mean, I'm certainly not a neuroscientist, but what I can tell you is that The rewarding effects have to do with increasing dopamine in your brain, which is the same kind of stimulation you would get from something that makes you happy. Eatings, uh, maybe sleeping, sex, other things that make you happy. So it's the same kind of system. And so it's that they refer to it as the the reward system without going into too much detail on it.
2: Got it. Okay. That's found in THC, but it's not found in CBD. So what properties of THC are found in CBD?
3: Yeah. So CBD and THC are two separate chemicals in the plant, and they're actually very structurally similar. And the reason that you get this rewarding effect with THC or the high is because it can bind to some proteins in your brain called cannabinoid receptors. So these are proteins that basically transmit signals. So if we think about what a chemical binding to a receptor is, we can kind of think about it like your phone. For instance, if you're going to open your phone with a fingerprint so if you think of the chemicals, the fingerprint, and then activating mm-hmm. that little punch pad on your phone, and that fits, your fingerprint fits into that phone. And that's exactly the same kind of thing with receptors and, and the things that bind them. Oh, um, that analogy,
2: so, that's, that works really well. I appreciate
3: okay, that. good. And the nice thing is that once THC binds to its receptor, it transmits some kind of signal so the cell can do what it does in response to THC. So again, similarly with the phone, once you... Open your phone, then that phone is able to do other things that you can't necessarily see, but it can communicate, it can text, it can open apps, what have you. So, that kind of similar thing applies if THC binds to its receptor and it transmits signals into the cell, and then the cell does various things. So, the difference between the THC and CBD, at least in the brain, is that CBD does not bind one of these receptors very well, the CB1 receptor, which is the main cannabinoid receptor in your brain. And so CBD doesn't produce those rewarding effects.
2: Interesting. This is really fascinating. Thank you for that. You know, that's very helpful. And I really appreciated that analogy because it helped me sort of put that picture together in my mind. I know that this is not your area of research, but your area is in the area of immunology. Explain to us a little bit about the kind of work you do in your lab.
3: Okay. So we've been focused on trying to understand effects of drugs and chemicals on the immune system for a long time. And I started this back in my graduate work. I initially got started because I did a research rotation in a lab that was trying to understand effects of cannabinoids on the immune system. So that was like my trial period. And I liked it so much because of the combination of immunology, biochemistry, pharmacology, and toxicology that I stayed on and did my graduate work there. Um, So now in, in my lab at Mississippi State, we are trying to understand more about how the immune system works. And how it's affected by various drugs and chemicals, and some of the chemicals that we use are those derived from marijuana, including THC and CBD.
2: What kinds of effects are you noticing? Because I know you're you're working with both mice, but also you know independently both of those both of the compounds. And so, what right. are you finding those effects to be on the immune system?
3: Right. So, in general, what we can say is that using CBD and THC. In mice, in which the immune system has been stimulated in some way, so maybe they have you know, a mouse version of the flu, or we trick them with a compound that makes them think they're reacting to a bacteria, that will initiate a number of responses in the immune system. So again, these cellular changes might come up, like the cells might start proliferating, or they might start releasing certain proteins. So and
2: what, is, uh, what does cell proliferation mean?
3: It's a really important component of the immune system, and that's when the cells just start dividing. Because okay. what you really want to have happen in an immune response is for your cells to divide at the time that they're needed. So if you get flu, then you want your flu cells to divide. You don't need other cells to divide at that time. So that's a really important component. So we we kind of trick the, the cells into dividing, and then we can look at what these compounds are doing or these chemicals are doing to that proliferation, for instance. And what we've seen, among some other endpoints, is that both THC and CBD are able to suppress that proliferative response.
2: Okay. So what does that mean um, in sort of more plain English? Does that mean that it's tamping down our immune system or?
3: Yes, in general. So I think our studies and those that are being done throughout the world have really suggested that these compounds are immune suppressive and anti-inflammatory in general. So we have a lot of data to suggest in animal studies and in human cells to show that many of the functions of various immune cells are compromised or suppressed in the presence of either THC or CBD.
2: So it's, you know, interesting that you sort of pointed out both an immune response and also an anti-inflammatory response, Mm -hmm. sort of separating those two things, even though we commonly think of inflammation as being a a pretty good signal that there's some sort of immune response happening.
3: Yes, absolutely. That's true. Um,
2: so I'm asking this question because I know that there are a lot of sort of fads out there trying to reduce inflammation and everything, and that's going to cure everything, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the uses for CBD. Yes, um, what at least you...
3: anecdotally. <laughs> Correct, right, of course. At least that's... <laughs>
2: From, uh, from the industry, from what I hear on the Correct. radio, which is crazy considering I live in Indiana and I regularly hear radio ads. I guess I'm the last person to listens to radio anyway, but uh, I hear radio ads for CBD and I drive past these establishments and I think, wow, this is very different than like three years ago. It's yes. a crazy, crazy world out there. So anyway, back to the inflammation question. If these are anti-inflammatory, that sounds like it's bad for the immune system. So why is there this sort of fad to try to reduce inflammation everywhere?
3: Right. make you healthier. So inflammation is definitely part of your immune response. It's a normal reaction that happens when you get infected with a bacteria or a virus or you poke your finger on a nail or what have you. So this is a normal cellular response that your body initiates in order to maybe destroy the pathogen or get rid of it or start cleaning up those cells that got damaged because you put your finger on a nail or whatever it is that reaction needs to happen for sure. But if it gets to the point where it's chronic or it isn't being shut down or it isn't being regulated enough, then that can lead to a chronic inflammatory state, maybe even inflammatory pain. And so that's where people are really have an interest in using some of these anti-inflammatory disease, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs.
2: Excellent. That's very helpful to understand on that same side of that same coin, right? Mm-hmm. If we're tamping down the immune system here, we're reducing the inflammation, um, that has a potential beneficial use in the context of some diseases, right? Can you talk a little bit sure. about
3: that? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about your immune response along a continuum, you kind of just want to be in the middle. You want a nice, healthy immune response that isn't so high that it's overactive and producing a lot of inflammation and maybe you have an autoimmune disease, but you don't want it so low that you become susceptible to infections or cancers or other things. So there's definitely some illness on either end of that spectrum of immunity, and you really want that right in the middle. So for some people, suppressing their immune response might be what they need. You might have to suppress an immune response. For instance, if you have an autoimmune disease, if you are undergoing some kind of tissue transplant, um, if you have some kind of chronic inflammatory disease, you would want to inhibit your immune response on the other hand if you're sitting there healthy then maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea because it might make you susceptible to other diseases that you might not otherwise be prone to getting
2: okay so um i mentioned to you earlier uh before we we started recording that uh i just spent a weekend in colorado with a bunch of my friends from college mm-hmm. which was a wonderful weekend and um while we were sitting around having dinner one evening i mentioned that we were going to be talking to you and uh and I asked them what questions they might have for you. I mean, I just thought maybe somebody in that group might have a question.
3: Okay. <laughs> you know,
2: and uh, and it turns out that my uh, college roommate, in fact, had a question because we were talking about your work with regard to tamping down the, uh, the immune response, which might be beneficial in the context of some autoimmune diseases, but also could be a problem um, right. if you're healthy and you're trying to avoid catching the flu. And my college roommate asked a question that Seemed like reasonable at the time. So now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to ask it of you. And that is, is it possible that say, hypothetically, someone was ingesting cannabis, uh, inhaling quite a bit and Mm -hmm. uh, sharing that paraphernalia quite a bit throughout uh, college when the immune system is maybe even at its ripest, um, (laughs) that it might be caused to create a really robust immune system. That would cause you, even if you're using lots of, let's say, THC, hypothetically down the road, you might be able to buffer against that because you have a really hyper robust uh, right. immune system. What are your thoughts on that? Because uh, he asked me the question, and at the time I thought, you know, I see the logic behind the question. I don't know enough about how the immune system sort of evolves through a lifetime,
3: right? Maybe right. I
2: should turn that around and ask of you.
3: Uh sure. So I think it's a very complicated question to be honest, yeah, and I I don't know that I have. The exact answer to it. One of the things that we've been finding lately in our work, which I think is really interesting and really needs to be explored more, is that, you know, despite the fact that these compounds and these chemicals kind of have a reputation for being immune-suppressive and anti-inflammatory, we have conditions under which sometimes we see the opposite effect, where it's maybe increasing some kind of endpoint that we're measuring the immune response, which is a little bit surprising. And uh, we don't quite understand why that's happening all the time. There could be a number of things that are involved with that. And um, one of those could be like, what is your quote state of your immunity? Like, where do you fall on this, on this balance on the spectrum of your immune response? And I think that could really possibly dictate how these chemicals are acting in people. So I, I think at this point, I'd I definitely don't have a clear answer for your friend. I think there's a number of things that could go into boosting or not their immunity. Uh, certainly sharing the paraphernalia, I'm sure, it has also allowed the germs to be shared as well. So.
2: I, I think that was the logic behind this question. Right. And so it yeah. sounds to me like, you know, you don't have a clear answer. No, you haven't been able to falsify that hypothesis. Data I, I that think, are interesting.
3: Yeah, we do have some data that are interesting. And I really think that we just need more research, especially using human cells. We can get human cells from um, human volunteers, actually quite easily. Immune cells can be isolated from the blood very easily in the lab, and then we can do those studies in the lab. So I think we just need to know more, and you know, know something about. Like we can even order at this point uh, disease state cells. We could get some autoimmune disease disease state mm-hmm. cells, and you know, maybe look at those um, and maybe compare those to quote healthy cells. You know, of course, the challenge with humans is that we've been exposed to all sorts of different things. So the state of one's immune system in response is going to be very different from the state of another. So I just think that we need more data, especially in human cells and under different conditions.
2: Interesting. Going back sort of to the laboratory approach to, uh, to sure. thing, you can sort of study this in, in the laboratory setting, in a non-clinical setting, uh, sure. sort of at the cellular level and also at the sort of whole organism level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the approaches for dosing these kinds of, of compounds in a case yes. like this, right? Because that's, first of all, there's not like a standard amount, right? Yes, so how, right. how do you come up with a, an idea of, you know, how much THC should I give right. um, to this, you know, this cell line or this particular cell or this, yes. cell or this animal? So and
3: for sure, this has been a challenge that researchers have faced for the last 20 years. So part of the challenge with working with these chemicals are, is that they're called lipophilic. And what that means is that they're fat loving. And so what that means for me as a researcher is that I can't just put them in water and then add them to my cells. I have to use a some kind of diluent, a vehicle. Usually that's ethanol. So right away, we're already dealing with the, the drugs in ethanol. So we, have that, so we have to control for that ethanol effect. The other thing that happens is that I'm sorry. Sure. It
2: just occurred to me, forgive me, Barb, that you're yes. literally setting these up these this dosing like a college Saturday night, right? Where you're basically putting two <laughs> in ethanol. In ethanol. Which is crazy. To think,
3: crazy to yeah.
2: so, so, what? So, maybe there's more viability for these studies, you know, in a, in a
3: yeah, that's right. down the that's road right. than, well, than
2: we are giving them credit for.
3: Well, and the ethanol concentrations that we're using are typically low enough where they aren't producing effects by themselves. Now, I will say that actually, one of my colleagues studies the effects of um, alcohol on the immune system. So, he might be a different podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> he, he would use um, higher, higher concentrations than I'm using. But yeah, we, we can't just you know, put them in water and expect them to be soluble. So that's um, one of our first challenges. Our second challenge is that it's really hard to know how much are the cells getting after like somebody smokes. Mm -hmm. We know about blood levels. We have a lot of information about blood levels after various exposure paradigms. After you, you know, smoke a joint, there's X nanogram per mil of THC in, you know, the blood. Or after you eat a cookie, there might be a different amount of THC in the blood. And that's pretty tightly
2: regulated, at least in legal states, correct?
3: uh, You know, I can't speak to that. I don't know what all the laws are surrounding what is able to be consumed and how much. Sorry, forgive me. What I
2: meant by that is what is in a given serving, right, is pretty tightly regulated. How many servings an individual eats, I think, is...
3: Well, that I don't know either. (laughs) Um, Again, I think that's... The industry has popped up so quickly over the last 10 or 15 years. And I think there's still a lot that we don't know about what should be in these certain things and, Mm, and how much should people take? So certainly I I can't really speak to that. Sure, Um, Forgive
2: me, continue on.
3: Oh, that's okay. But our challenge has always been, you know, are the cells getting in the animal, for instance, um, are the, or after somebody smokes marijuana, are the cells in the person getting the same amount that we're giving in the dish? And the real answer is we're probably giving too much in the dish. Um, however, I would say that because these compounds, again, they're so fat loving, we have some evidence to suggest that it's not all getting to the cells, that it's kind of being non-specifically kind of bound up by other proteins in the culture or even in the plasticware or what have you.
2: So it's attaching itself to other molecules in the slurry.
3: Yes, exactly. So we are trying to pursue some studies where we're trying to measure the cellular level so we can get an idea. And I think the other thing that we don't really know a lot about is what are those small environments in the body? So for instance, if you smoke a joint, there's going to be a lot more of the marijuana concentration in those cells in your lung than there might be in your big toe. And so if we could get to that point where we could measure those cells, I mean, that might give us higher concentrations than we might expect to see in the blood. And then the other interesting part, well, actually there's a couple other interesting parts. One is that typically when you're measuring blood levels of a person who smokes marijuana, you're mainly focused on THC. But of course, there's hundreds of other chemicals in the plant. And, you know, those may or may not affect um, THC and or CBD or what have you. And then finally, when you're looking at, at people or intact animals, um, they're going to have the ability to metabolize it or get rid of it. Whereas the cells pretty much, at least in the immune cells, have a pretty limited ability to break down those compounds and and get rid of them and eliminate them like you would have in the animal. So we definitely have some translation challenges, and I don't think that's the unique to the marijuana field. It's unique, you know, looking at chemicals across the board. It's definitely a challenge for for all of us.
2: Drawing back to our earlier discussion about receptors, mm-hmm. individual cells. So these are, these are not just present in the brain. Is that correct? Are they present? Yes,
3: correct. So there are actually two cannabinoid receptors that we know about that were cloned. Um, In 1990, the CB1 receptor was cloned. It is the main receptor that's expressed in the central nervous system. Um, In 1993, the CB2 receptor was cloned and it was found at very high levels in the immune system. Although I should say that both receptors can really be found throughout the body. It's just the main one in your brain is CB1, and the main one in your periphery, I guess uh, we'll call it, and especially in your immune system. Is CB2.
2: Okay, so there are a finite number of receptors then throughout the body, correct?
3: Yes, I guess you could say that. But what I will say is that one of the interesting things that happened, interesting things that happened when I started graduate school, it was soon after uh, these receptors were cloned. And so I think the field's assumption at that time or the field's hypothesis was that most of the immune effects would be mediated or it would act through, especially this CB2 receptor because it was expressed so highly. In cells of the immune system. And we kept on finding evidence that wasn't really the case. It was really kind of interesting. We had several lines of evidence. Mm. We were using a knockout mouse model at the time that didn't have either one of the CB1 or CB2 receptors. And when we treated our cells um, with THC or even CBD at that time, and let's say we look at inhibition of some protein that normally happens in the immune response. It was happening regardless of whether or not the receptors were present. And so, what that tells us is that those two compounds can act through probably some other receptor as well. And so, in addition to, especially for THC, because it will bind readily to CB1 and CB2, mm-hmm. whereas cannabidiol doesn't necessarily bind one with very much affinity, if you will, there's still other receptors out there that these things must bind to. And, and certainly, other groups throughout the world have, you know, found what some of those are. I don't Mm -hmm. think we know yet what the cannabidiol receptor is. Right, right. Um, I I think that's still elusive. So are there finite receptors? Yes. Um, But it certainly goes beyond just cannabinoid receptors one and two.
2: Got it. So ultimately, you uh, sort of got to the second question that my roommate wanted to know, which is, you know, can you ingest too much, right? Is there a finite amount that you can ingest or can you continue to get higher and higher, right? Which is <laughs> right, the question yes. he's been asking, I think, himself for uh, <laughs> since, since our days of college.
3: Right. <laughs> and that could be. Um, yeah. So the, the answer is that the what we call the lethal dose, the dose at which you, know, you might expect to die from THC is actually quite high. And what that means is that This isn't something that is going to kill you directly very easily. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, I will say that uh, your actions while you're using it might kill you faster than (laughs) you're using it itself. Um, Decisions are one. Yes, correct. Um, And so, you know, I certainly can't condone, you know, driving or anything else important while you're using it, but um, it doesn't produce the same kind of respiratory depression, for instance, like opioids do. So um, sure, sure. in that regard, it, it just doesn't have the same toxicity profile that, that other drugs do. Now, like I said, it's, it's not that you can't succumb to right, right. your own death as a result of using too much of it. But Of
2: course, yeah. I mean, we're, yeah. all, we're all guilty of succumbing to our own poor decisions at some point <laughs> in our life, I imagine. So yes. <laughs> um, so you actually mentioned opioids. It's sort of a good segue to a question that, uh, that I wanted to ask you about um, sort of the rapid shift in people's opinions toward Mm -hmm. cannabis, which I've noticed really a lot of over the last several years, like just the last two or three years, even, yes, um, you know, with more states now legalizing either medical or recreational cannabis um, seems to be that maybe there's less red tape for users. What about on your end, right? Has it made your work any (laughs) easier or has it made it more difficult?
3: I really don't think it's changed too much for researchers. Uh, we still have a lot of um, because the bottom line is is that marijuana is still illegal federally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we still have just about as much paperwork as we had before. I think part of the big interest in marijuana and some of the compounds in the plant and and other things really stemmed in part from the opioid crisis, right. The fact that, you know, <laughs> they could see that a lot of people were using these things inappropriately or, you know, succumbing to addiction, and then, unfortunately losing their lives in that manner. And there needed to be an answer to that. We have people who are in pain, but the opioid drugs probably aren't the best answer. So is there something about some of the chemicals in marijuana that might be useful for pain? Um, Could we understand whether or not they're good for pain and use them to maybe taper off A dose of opioids if those are still necessary or replace them even. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where a big push for this came from in part. There was also a huge push, especially for cannabidiol over the last probably five to 10 years because of its effectiveness for some very rare epileptic syndromes in children. Yeah. That really took off and really pushed the research for sure.
2: Yeah. And I know that that resulted in,
3: is it Epidiolex? Is that right? Yes. Yes, Um, which
2: is an FDA-approved CBD-based drug for treatment of epilepsy. Is that correct? Yes,
3: yes, correct. So it's specific kind of rare epileptic syndromes in children. So that was really kind of neat to see is that some of these observations that have been made in the lab and a lot of the anecdotal reports that we were getting from people who were just basically pushing the government to use it really allowed for that pharmaceutical company to develop that. And it was approved in, I think it was 2018 and has since been totally unscheduled, which means that it doesn't require extra paperwork for the prescription to be available to these families.
2: Okay, Barb, I have one last question for you. Okay. Um, Our listeners are going to want to know, how did you get involved in this kind of work, right? I mean, (laughs) I can imagine the kind of conversation if I had had it with my parents about how I wanted to go to grad school to study pot. Right. Yes. Yeah, the, look, the look I would have gotten would have been very different <laughs> than the look your parents probably gave you. Yes. Um, so yes. how did you get how did you get here?
3: Yeah. So I um, got my undergraduate degree in environmental toxicology. I was always interested in chemicals and you know how they moved in the environment and what they did in people. And so when I went back for my PhD in pharmacology and toxicology like I said earlier, as a graduate student, I started this research rotation, which is basically a trial run in the lab where Mm -hmm. they were studying this. And I just thought it was such a great marriage of understanding biochemistry and applying that to immunology and then bringing in pharmacology and toxicology and just trying to understand how a group of natural chemicals might affect our immune response. And if that's, Good, great. If it's bad, then we need to know. If it can be both, we need to know that too.
2: Did you have any personal connection to cannabis prior to that? I mean, like, you know, family member who <laughs> no not, or no. anything like that? I mean, was it <laughs> no. just a random sort of it was
3: it was really just random. Like I, I knew of the lab, I knew of the good work they were doing in there. because um, mm-hmm. they had other focuses, foci, I guess, um, other than just the marijuana compounds, but I just mm-hmm. was drawn to learning about the immune system. And this was one way for me to do that.
2: That's so cool. That's so interesting, right? I mean, we're all drawn to the kind of science that we do from very different backgrounds. In fact, I would imagine that it was probably my experience with cannabis that led me toward my area of science having been, having been a fossil hunter at one point, (laughs) or, you know, having dreams of that at least Mm -hmm. um, and and interpreting, you know, um, fossil locomotion, you know, locomotion (laughs) of fossil humans. Um, right, certainly takes a little bit of creativity and I'm sure that that's led me down that path. Uh, very funny, <laughs> for sure. Uh, that we all sort of get to our, our work in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you very much again. Uh, our guest has been Dr. Barbara Kaplan from Mississippi State University. Uh, we are so fortunate to have you again, thank you so much and uh, for telling us all about your work and for being a friend of the podcast.
3: Thank you so much. Well thank you so much. I appreciate you having me and I just you know hope that we can continue researching this and understanding it and uh, talking about our science.
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Barb Kaplan for talking to us about her work and some of the difficulties associated with it. If you want to learn more about what she does, we're going to have two articles that she's written linked on our website. So check that out at scyanite.com. My name is James Reed. If you want to follow me, go to Twitter and search at James underscore Reed Three. Jason, where can everyone find you?
2: You can find me on Twitter at
0: organjm. And Steffi, where can everyone go and immediately wish you a happy birthday?
1: You can wish me a happy birthday on Twitter at Steffi Deem.
0: If you want to follow this show, go to our website that I mentioned already, scinight.com. That is S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T.com. And follow us on Twitter at ScienceNight and the number one. Thank you all for listening. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.
2: Also, I just wanted to point out that nobody laughed at my coffee or caffeine being on the schedule five a.m.
0: Oh well, no, it's, that it's, got lost in the the Zoom warp for me.
2: It did. It did. I, I was holding
1: I was, back the laughter because I didn't want to. I,
2: I was really proud of that one. I was. <laughs> It was so corny and so bad. Like, it's a special place in hell for those jokes.
0: Obviously, we have our stinger for this episode, so so <laughs> okay.
3: we're good to go. Congratulations. I think this might be your first one.